This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you here every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern and around the clock on demand all over the world on our podcast. That's available at GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need to know about the program right there. GuyBensonShow.com. For the podcast specifically, yes, you can go to GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On this Thursday, we have a strong lineup ahead, including at 4.05 Eastern, General Keith Kellogg, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor. He will be here on the latest out of Ukraine. We have some new details coming out of Ukraine as well that we will get to. I also look forward to chatting with Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. We've got a lot to discuss with him from the Ukraine-Russia war to Iran and that deal, to energy. We will cover it all with Congressman Crenshaw. That's coming up in our final hour, our third hour today. Also, Larry Kudlow, our colleague here at Fox, host of Kudlow at 4 p.m. Eastern on FBN, former director of the National Economic Council under Trump. He will be here also in our 5 p.m. hour. So we've got a lot of different topics to try to cover as best we can over these three hours, and we are grateful that you're joining us. As we begin the program, we'll bring you a Fox News alert, as we always do, although not for much longer, I would say. I've been saying this at some point. We're going to stop with the daily COVID updates now that I think the national emergency is over. But for now, the case count, 79.3 million confirmed cases all in cumulatively. That's a lowball number by a lot. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID over the last two years in the United States, 962,498. The Dow is down 183 points right now, 33,102. We have about 52 minutes left to go in the trading day. Well, there was some not great news today on inflation. And this should not come as a surprise really to anyone because the inflation numbers have been absolutely brutal now month after month after month. There were warning signs in the early days of the Biden administration. They shoveled two million, not two million, two billion, no, not two billion, two trillion with a T dollars out the door on what they called COVID relief. 
And there are lots of questions to this day. Okay, where did that money go exactly? Republicans warned at the time. Some of this seems wasteful. Some of this seems unrelated. Some of this seems like it's years down the line, has nothing to do with the current emergency. And the Democrats had enough votes to ignore all of those concerns and on a party line vote pass the yes, nearly two trillion dollars in addition to the trillions that had already been spent on a bipartisan basis during the Trump administration. What was our return on investment there? Then they set about trying to pass $5 trillion in more spending and build back better. That hasn't worked, but they're still trying. They're in the process of passing a huge omnibus spending bill in the ballpark of $1.5 trillion. I mean, the, the numbers are just astronomical. And in those early days... There were even some voices on the Democratic side, on the center left side of things, saying, you know, maybe this is not the right time to be spending even more. Haven't we spent so much already? And the answer was, you be quiet. Anything that might look like inflation here is, remember the word, transitory. And it took them months to finally admit that's a word that doesn't apply, and they stopped using it long after it was beyond obvious that they shouldn't use it anymore. So each month, each successive month, we've come on this program and we've brought you the latest on inflation. And we're going to do it again here today. Headline, Wall Street Journal, inflation reached 7.9% in February. Consumer prices are the highest in 40 years. Rising energy, food, and services prices pushed already elevated U.S. inflation to a 7.9% annual rate last month, another four-decade high. It hasn't been this bad since 1982. With oil and the commodity market disruptions from Ukraine expected to add more cost pressures, just wait till next month's report. The Consumer Price Index, which measures the cost of goods and services across the economy, hasn't been this high since it was back in January of 82, 8.4% then, when the nation was in a recession and trying to tame what had become double-digit inflation during the Carter years, of course, we remember. That was a years-long process of undoing that damage. So we're back to where we were 40 years ago, and because of what's happening across the globe, it's probably going to get worse, certainly on the energy side, in the weeks and months to come. Now, what's shameless is this administration, this president and his supporters are trying to blame this on Russia. And if you've been listening to this program in recent weeks, you know that I am perfectly comfortable criticizing Russia and blaming Russia for a lot of things, like the war that they have launched for no good reason in Ukraine. I saw Lavrov, their foreign secretary, said yesterday with a straight face that they haven't attacked Ukraine. It's just surreal. They've invaded the country from three different directions. The bombing videos that you're seeing of children's hospitals, maternity wards, I mean, it's appalling. But the Russian government lies Reflexively, they are inveterate, systemic liars. It's part of the deeply ingrained culture at the Kremlin. And there's no lie too shameless for them to attempt, and they're certainly attempting it. So I'm highly critical of Putin. I'm highly critical of the Kremlin and the Russians. But this is the February 
inflation report. This invasion has happened in recent days. I mean, there's a little bit of that at the tail end, but this was mostly pre-invasion. The March number is going to get worse, but I think what we're seeing, just like with high gas prices and fuel prices, they're saying, oh, it's the Putin price bump. Trying to pretend like this is just the Russians who have done this, and it wasn't a steady increase of pain on energy prices and on basically everything else now for month after month after month, dating back a year. And the fact that they're already retreating to this talking point, blaming Putin for the inflation, I think is extremely cynical. And it's really insulting to the collective intelligence of the American voters, the American electorate. It's interesting. There is a quote from Biden today saying that a large contributor to inflation this month was Putin and the invasion of Ukraine. Stephen Ratner, who is a top economic advisor in the Obama administration, a Democratic economist, a liberal. He served in the previous Democratic administration under President Obama. He responded to that claim, that assertion from President Biden saying, well, no. These are February numbers. He's making the point that I just made. They only had a small Russia effect. This is, quoting Ratner now, this is Biden's inflation and he needs to own it. I mean, he doesn't want to own it. His political party doesn't want to own it. But own it, they do. It's happening on their watch. Republicans are powerless in Washington, D.C. They've done all this spending. They're planning to spend more. They would like to spend $5 trillion more, like 99% of House Democrats. Actually, I think it was 100% of House Democrats. Maybe one guy didn't from Maine. But almost every single House Democrat and almost every single Senate Democrat has voted or would vote for $5 trillion in additional spending in this environment. When you look at the numbers... In today's inflation report, Heather Long has this, a Washington Post writer. She says many of the price increases are the highest ever recorded by BLS. Hotel prices up 29 percent, furniture 17 percent, chicken 13 percent, new cars and trucks 12 percent, flooring 11 percent, lunch meat 11 percent, dry cleaning 9.5 percent, tools 8.7%. Baby food, 8.4%. Full-service restaurants, 7.5%. Pet supplies, 7.5%. These are increases. Toys, 6.7%. Car repair, 6.7%. And those are just the the examples of the highest ever recorded increases in prices. Imagine being a blue-collar worker, a working-class American, who's getting pummeled As you fill up your gas tank, you have to drive to work. That is how you get there. That's how you get home. There is no other option. Every time you fill up, it is getting worse. It is taking increasingly gigantic chunks out of your bank account. And God forbid your car breaks down, the repairs to that car will now cost nearly 7% more. Then you get home. You've got a new baby at home. Feeding that baby with baby food is more than 8% more expensive now. 
Your younger kids, they like chicken. You can't really afford beef or steak right now, let alone seafood flown in. So you go with chicken. That's up 13%. You want to take your family on vacation? It's been a really rough two years. You look at the hotels, 29% increase in the cost there. This is the real pain for real people, and you can try to blame it if you're Biden. You can try to blame all of it on Russia, and I think a lot of people are going to roll their eyes and say, no. We understand that there are some contributing factors. We understand that moving forward is probably going to get worse in certain sectors, but this has been building and developing for a very long time. And by the way, a question that I think could be asked of the White House as they try to call this, you know, the the Putin price hike or whatever their snappy little slogan is. If you're going to blame all of this inflation on Putin or a lot of it on Putin. Simultaneously, do you still support would the president still like to sign? Build back better into law if it passed tomorrow, if Congress somehow passed it tomorrow, five trillion dollars in new spending, would the president sign it? And the answer would have to be yes. Because he's been telling anyone who will listen he wants to sign $5 trillion of new spending. Which tells you everything you need to know. They are ideologically committed to spending us into oblivion on social programs. Some of the outcomes of the spending they've already done are taking a bite out of Americans' paychecks, a big one, a bigger one, it would seem, every month. They want to deflect to Putin... They want to attack Putin on gas prices, too. Then when they're asked about energy production in this country, they say, oh, well, uh, that's that's actually a red herring and the Republicans are lying and it's not a real narrative. Really. They expect us to have extremely short memories on that front as well. Let's let's refresh, perhaps, our memories collectively with some sound bites of Joe Biden and his team not long ago, not decades ago. There's lots of old clips of Joe Biden saying everything, basically. He's been in Washington for what feels like a century and a half. These are sound bites from Joe Biden as a candidate for president this cycle and as president. Let's get to some of those when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Thursday. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I want you to just take a look, okay? You don't have to agree, but I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel, and I am not going to cooperate. I'm Guy Benson. That was Joe Biden in 2019 in New Hampshire on the campaign trail, guaranteeing an end to fossil fuels to a big cheer from the left-wing crowd. This is how he campaigned for president. And that wasn't an isolated soundbite. Eric Erickson shared a video that was a mashup of some of the things that Biden and his team have said. 
just in the last couple of years, interspersed with their new blame game with Putin. Like, it's all Putin. And the thing is, what they expect us to believe, honestly, apparently, what they expect us to believe is all of the hostility toward American energy production here at home, that isn't green energy, all that hostility, eh, we kind of just imagined it. And it, if it happened, if they said it, it hasn't actually been implemented. And the oil companies are really at fault because they have all these opportunities and these permits to drill, and they're just not doing it because they want profits, so they're doing that instead, and they're not drilling. They're not going to – who believes this? We know what their position is. All the way back to Obama, the Democratic position is it's actually good for people to pay more for fossil fuels, uh, fuels because that will make sure that we move on to a green future. That will create the pain – that will push us necessarily into a new generation of green energy. And then when that is hurting them politically, they kind of pretend that they never say those things. And when they're blaming the oil companies for not drilling enough, and they have, oh, just all these permits, that for some reason they're refusing to drill, they're leaving out huge pieces of the story, including areas that have been shut down for drilling on federal land under President Biden, and also... The huge amount of regulations and red tape, the cost of doing it has gone way up. They say, well, why don't you do it? Well, it's not nearly as cost effective anymore because of the policies of this administration that depending on which audience they're talking to, they're actually proud of. So Eric Erickson put out this video that I mentioned, this montage. I want to play you some of it starting in cut 14. Three consecutive American presidents have enjoyed stints of explosive economic growth due to a boom in oil and natural gas production. As president, would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth, even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Number one. No more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. I've been against Keystone from the beginning. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. The reason why the price of gas is going up is not because of steps the president has taken. They are because President Putin is invading Ukraine. Ah, so those last two clips are Biden and Circleback saying this is on Putin. The previous clips before that, including the one that we bumped in with at the start of this segment, are Joe Biden expressing very explicitly his hostility to American oil and energy production here. Quote, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industries. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill Period. It ends. That's what Biden said on the debate stage when it was down to him and Bernie Sanders in that debate on CNN. We didn't make this stuff up. We're not inventing this stuff. The hostility was advertised to voters. Then it was implemented. Now we're having a very difficult time, and they want us to believe it's just the oil companies and Putin who are doing this. Ridiculous. More when we return on The Guy Benson Show. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket, even... Yeah, regardless of what I say about whether coal is good or bad, because I'm capping greenhouse gases, coal-powered plants, you know, natural gas, you name whatever the plants were, whatever the industry was, they would have to uh, retrofit their operations. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I've now referenced that clip a few times, and I wanted just to play it for you so you didn't have to take my word for it. Barack Obama running for president in the 08 cycle. He was meeting with the San Francisco Chronicle editorial board, bragging at the time. Under my plan on energy, electricity rates will, quote, necessarily skyrocket. You talked about all the different you know, coal or natural gas, you name it. It's going to go up because of his environmental regulations and requirements. This was something that he was prideful about. This was, as I've said, a feature of his plan, not a bug. It's like you got to make it as painful for people as possible to force a transition to a green future. That is what they believe ideologically. And then when it becomes a political pressure point for them, they engage in gaslighting and dissembling and distraction. Oh, well, it's really about the oil companies not drilling enough. We've given them permission, but they won't. I mean, really? Oh, it's Putin. Putin did it like this is something that they have said this is going back years, right? That's more than a decade ago, Barack Obama bragging about that. And by the way, notice he said that electricity rates will necessarily skyrocket. That's different than filling up your car. That's different in many cases than heating your home. That's electricity. Now, what are they pushing on another front here? They're pushing electric cars. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, if we didn't just use fossil fuels and gas to get around in our cars and our big SUVs, the gas guzzlers. Remember, you can't just heat your home to 72 degrees and be comfortable. That's that's selfish. That was something else Barack Obama said. They're saying the future is power your car with electricity. Well, his plan was to make electricity rates go way up, necessarily skyrocket, his words. And electricity doesn't grow on trees. Right? It's not like, oh, well, this you've got dirty oil over here and then clean electricity over here. It's not that simple. And if you want electricity rates also to go up, how is that going to lower prices for people when it comes to their cars? Right? Just when you test certain – it's like kind of whack-a-mole. Right? You bang on one of their talking points and another claim pops up over here. You say, well, but hang on. If you do that over here, let me hit that. And, oh, over here. Here's another one. Another word for this could be Calvin Ball. It's just like always changing depending on what the political necessity might be. So Jen Psaki was asked yesterday about the coming inflation number today, which we told you at the top, 7.9 percent. 
the inflation rate. The worst in 40 years. Hasn't been this bad since we were coming out of the terrible recession and inflation or like the stagflation disaster of Jimmy Carter into the early 80s. That's the last time it was this bad. And some of the prices are hitting record highs in terms of increases. 7.9%. So they knew a bad number was coming. So they were already trying to make their excuses in advance, and she was blaming Putin and the Russians. Senator Mitch McConnell, this morning on the Senate floor, the Republican leader, he came out and was like, I'm sorry, you can't pretend like there's a straight line between A and B and you're just absolved and your policies and your worldview and your ideology is absolved from any blame. They have been telegraphing to their left-wing voters for more than a decade, well over a decade, that higher energy prices are part of their ideological program, and it's for the environment, and we need to basically just suck it up. And people will clap along to that, except when things get really tough like they are right now, and then, as I've said, the gaslighting really gets going in earnest. So McConnell called this out starting in cut 24. Listen here. Here's what our president said on the campaign trail in 2020, a direct quote. No more subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. It ends. That was the president in 2020. Here's what he told an activist. Look at my eyes. I guarantee you we're going to end, end fossil fuel. Now, President Biden spent two years campaigning on hostility to American energy. Now he's spent 14 months putting that hostility right into action. And Democrats' reckless spending that's fueled across-the-board inflation has made America's pain at the pump even worse. All right, so he quotes Biden. And again, if you don't want to believe Mitch McConnell— you think cocaine Mitch is just a big liar. So's Guy Benson, that right winger Guy Benson. I'm not that right wing. We're just playing you the clips. He recited those quotes verbatim. And we played you the clips in this hour from Biden's own mouth. That's what he said. And to a large extent, he's done it. And the White House wants us to believe, well, he didn't mean it. He hasn't really done it. It's Putin's fault. It's the oil company's fault. McConnell goes on, cut 25. But in the last few days, the Biden administration has tried to invent some laugh-out-loud, laugh-out-loud revisionist history. (coughs) They're trying to rebrand the entire increase in gas prices on their watch, listen to this, as an effect of Putin's recent invasion of Ukraine. So they want to blame 14 months of gas price increases on the last two weeks of turmoil. Washington Democrats' war on domestic energy long, long predates Putin's war on Ukraine. That's right. So let me say that again. Democrats' war on domestic energy long predates Putin's war on Ukraine. By more than a year. And this revisionist history is so self-serving, so transparently political. They were getting this kind of spin as well. This was from today. The White House, the official White House account, tweeted, when we have electric cars powered by clean energy, 
We will never have to worry about gas prices again. And autocrats like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. Oh, what a lovely thought. By the way, talking about autocrats and gas and and oil, what are we doing right now? Biden is going and begging the Saudis to produce more oil and sell it to us. The Venezuelans reports that Iran and their oil could be on the table. We talked yesterday at length about the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. And I gave you a very, I think, careful, researched, nuanced take on it. You can go back and listen to the podcast from yesterday, opening of the show if you want. We're freaking out heavily about some misinformation about that bill in Florida, about what can be taught, particularly to very young students in classrooms. And it's a big LGBT issue. Meanwhile, we are begging the Saudis and apparently the Iranians for their oil. What do those regimes do to LGBT community members in those countries? I'm just I'm just curious if people know or if they care. But here we have the White House tweeting, oh, we'll just have this amazing future. We'll all have electric cars powered by clean energy. By the way, it can't be powered by just electricity because a lot of that is unclean. The coal, right? We can't have that. Electricity prices have to necessarily skyrocket. That's what Barack Obama promised. So we've got this magical fairy tale in the future. And I'm all for innovation in the private sector and helping us get to the next thing. But it's it's crazy to pretend like, oh, we're just going to have a bunch of uh, unicorns. The unicorns are going to get us to electric cars that are powered by the cleanest of energy. And then Putin loses and we'll be fine. The fact is we had energy independence just a few years ago. We were exporting on a net basis energy in this country. And that was reversed by design, on purpose, by this administration, because that's what they believe. Electric cars, by the way, are not exactly cheap. Like, oh, yeah, go get a Tesla. That family that we were talking about in the opening segment with their costs going up and up and up all across the board on everything they need to drive to work. Like, Go out and get a Tesla, guys. Good luck with that. A lot of these cars are costing, what, 50, 60 grand? People don't have that money lying around. And again, to power those cars, you need electricity. You need it to be reliable. You need it to be affordable now. Not in the future, but now. It's another form of energy that has also been under assault in various ways from the people beholden to the environmental green left, the Green New Deal Party. Like, it's just this insulting tweet from the White House about this magical future. And I hope we can get there. But they tell us, oh, more drilling and pipelines being approved, that won't do anything for us right now. That's a, a you know medium to long-term solution. Doesn't help us right now, which is what they also said back in the Obama years. Oh, that would take years. Well, here we are, years later. Think that could have helped now? You bet. And we'll be having the same conversation next time. And yet, out of the other side of their mouth, and here's the whack-a-mole again, like, oh, no, that's not, a, that's not a now solution. That would be a later solution at best. But they're saying, oh, well, in the future, when we have electric cars powered by clean energy, dot, 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 that doesn't sound like a now solution either, does it? 
You had Mayor Pete singing the praises. I, excuse me, Secretary Pete, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, was singing the praises of these electric cars. Again, very expensive electric cars. This was uh, just a few days ago. Cut 35. Listen. Clean transportation can bring significant cost savings for the American people as well. Last month, we announced a $5 billion investment to build out a nationwide electric vehicle charging network so the people from rural to suburban to urban communities can all benefit from the gas savings of driving an EV. Well, what happens when electricity rates necessarily skyrocket? And how do they get these cars to begin with? Their EV, their electronic vehicle, how do they get that? It's 50 grand. So they want you to believe that all of their rhetoric, openly hostile to fossil fuels and domestic production here, that's all in your imagination. Putin did it. The oil companies aren't doing their part. But please, Saudi Arabia, please, Iran, please, Venezuela, help us. And what we really need to do is just get everyone a fleet of electric cars moving forward. Won't that be great? Life will be so much better when we do that, and they're making all of these investments on our behalf. Meanwhile, they're very expensive cars to buy. And if a mom and a dad were to come up to a Secretary Granholm, for example, the Energy Secretary, who burst out laughing a few months ago on TV, asked about increasing domestic production here at home, oil and gas, she laughed. We played you the clip this week. Laughed and laughed on Bloomberg. Oh, ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. Grabbing her belly, it was so hilarious. If you asked her, what about this? Well, people actually are asking her now, and she's been running away from questions from Fox News, for example. What would she say? Go buy a car. Go buy an EV. Secretary P, oh, yeah, just go get an EV. Things will be great. Well, I'm sorry, Madam Secretary, Mr. Secretary. We don't have that kind of money. How are we supposed to get our EV? What would the response be? Could it sound something like cut 36? You look poor. There is a very significant bubble within the ruling class, especially on the left side of the aisle, and they don't have good answers. And with average people hurting and angry, their answer is to deflect and blame everyone else. Don't fall for it. The Guy Benson Show is back after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As you know, there's no more important issue for us right now uh, than dealing with people who are committing crimes in our city. Uh, and we, we saw one um, person probably didn't intend to kill anybody, but did. It devastated a family. Uh, and we have some a lookout for that person. We have a video circulating for two people of interest, in fact. So we want people to take a look at that video so that we can find the individuals responsible. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, that was Mayor Muriel Bowser in Washington, D.C., which is where I sit right now, talking about an absolutely horrific crime that was committed here this week in D.C. A Maryland doctor, this is from foxnews.com, is dead after a carjacker allegedly stole his car and then fatally struck him as he attempted to get it back, police said. Dr. Rakesh Patel, age 33, a doctor at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, 
became the victim of a fatal hit-and-run in Silver Spring on Tuesday after he left his car running while he dropped something off at his girlfriend's house. When it was stolen, it then rammed him. A friend of Patel's girlfriend told the outlet the couple was in the process of saying goodnight when they noticed Patel's car was pulling forward with an unknown individual inside. The doctor reportedly pursued the vehicle as it fled, and he was later found in critical condition on the side of the road because this carjacker hit him. And now he's dead. 33. Doctor. ICU doctor is what I read. Think about the, the world of an ICU doctor for the last two years in particular. And now here you are just dropping something at your girlfriend's place. Someone takes your car and then kills you with it and drives off. And if this were a one-off incident, it would be horrible. But it may be slightly less infuriating. But it's not. It is just as infuriating because this is an everyday occurrence, the carjacking, at least in Washington. More than one a day on average last year. It is an epidemic. Crime up and down the board when it comes to seriousness. And Bowser, the mayor, obviously sounding very upset about it, but saying this person probably didn't intend to kill someone, but he did. Well, when we have violent crime exploding... Things happen. Whether there was murderous intent or not, a murder took place. And when people get the message that they are open for business as criminals and they're increasingly brazen on this kind of stuff, people are going to get hurt and people are going to die. That's exactly what happened to this doctor who's younger than I am. Wyatt, you said that there are businesses that you see every day with their windows just getting smashed over and over again, right? Yep, it's like a daily occurrence. They'll fix the windows, they'll smash them. They fix the windows, smash them, just back and forth every night. There's there's lots of property destruction throughout the city. And that's lower-level stuff. Then there's the carjacking, the killings. By the way, those businesses, what are they? They just keep replacing windows. That's a cost. How do they stay in business? They've just come through this this horrible pandemic, and now they have criminals running rampant in this city. But guess what? The kids are still wearing masks in schools in Washington, D.C. Mayor Bowser said that might change in the coming days. How munificent and benevolent of her. A lot of the school kids are the ones actually doing the carjackings, by the way. School-age kids. It's a mess in our nation's capital, in the bluest city in the country. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour here on the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, that's when we air. And if you can't listen live for those three hours, there's a podcast always free on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all program-related needs. You can also follow us on social, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. GuyBensonShow.com, though, if you remember nothing else, that's the website. As we kick off this second of three hours, let's bring you the Fox News alert that we always do. And report that the Dow closed down today, off-session lows, but still in the red. 113 points down, ending the day at 33,173. 
Joining me now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, also former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council in the Trump administration. His book is War by Other Means. And, General, it's great to have you back here. Thanks so much for joining the show. Guy, thanks for having me today. Appreciate it. I want to start with just a big picture assessment from you about where things stand in Ukraine, because I've read a number of sources online and elsewhere suggesting that the Russians have actually experienced some military setbacks in their efforts to get closer to Kiev, for example. They've been pushed further back by Ukrainian forces. There's some dramatic video circulating of a convoy on looks like a major street just getting hammered by the Ukrainians. And then there are other reports about gains from the Russians in the south, for example. We've seen these horrible images of civilian casualties at a children's hospital bombed. Are the Russians on the march here? Are they gaining or are they losing ground? Yeah, it's a great question, Guy, because actually I think they're losing. And let me explain why. Look, Putin made some huge uh, mistakes here. And one of them was he didn't wait what's called the main effort. The main effort should have been the city of Kiev and should have been the government, what's called decapitation of the government, replacing the government. Because that's like the, the old days when we were kids of capturing the flag. You've got to take out the the main center of government, which is Kiev, and get to it fast. You know, General Milley said before this thing even started, well, the Russians will get to Kiev in three days. Well, now it's 15 days. And by him, he meaning Putin not doing that, uh, it's causing him enormous problems and it's making him look pretty stupid in front of the entire world. And what he did is he didn't make, uh, wait that main effort. What I mean by that is using a football analogy is you put another lineman on the other side of the center so the running back has more power on one side of the line than the other. He he actually went up three different directions. He came from the south. He came from the east, and he came from the north. Well, the other two accounts are fine, but he hasn't destabilized the government at all. And here you have a Churchillian-type leader in, in uh, Zelensky who has said to him, if you attack, you'll see my face and not my backs, and then sent to us, and I don't need a riot, I need ammunition. And, and the whole population is taking the key from him. So this is forcing Putin to go into Kiev, a city of 3 million now down to about 1.5 or 2 million, uh, a massive city, a city that's 2,000 years old, and probably have to go street by street, block by block, house by house. And that is, for any army, that's a losing proposition, and they can last a long time. So I think the end state is he's got a problem. If he doesn't take Kiev down, he's eventually going to lose this war. He's already lost it from the information space. He's lost it diplomatically. Uh, he's, he's lost it, uh, you know, economically. And he's about to lose it militarily. And uh, he doesn't have the legs anymore. What I mean by legs, uh, the, the amount of forces to push past the Dnieper River to get to the west. He's, he's committed almost 100% of his forces. They still haven't occupied the east. It's going to be a long fight, and every day that goes by is bad for Putin. And every day that goes by, I'd probably double my bodyguards if I was him, mm. because I don't think the Russians will tolerate the loss to Ukraine when they have outnumbered him 10 to 1. Well, and the, the, ex, uh, the estimates, rather, that I've seen from our government is five to six or four to 6,000 Russian troops have been killed the EU officials that have been quoted in various reports think it could be seven to 9,000 Russians. These are Russian soldiers who've been killed. I mean, it's an unbelievable number. I mean, given the fact that we had over 2,000 troops killed in 20 years in Afghanistan, 
they're at double or maybe triple that or even quadruple that already in, in two weeks in Ukraine. And you see the videos, even in some of the smaller cities that have been taken by the Russians, at least nominally, there are people in the streets every day with Ukrainian flags angrily harassing and attacking Russian soldiers. I mean, this is not going to be a country that's going to be pacified anytime soon, if ever. And there seem to be indications militarily, as you were just talking about, that the push to Kiev is not only not going well, uh, some of the advances have been repelled by the Ukrainians, which I think is very impressive and very encouraging and certainly not how Putin drew this up. Yeah, you, you know, Guy, there's an old Napoleonic axiom, goes back, you know, over 100 years. And Napoleon said the physical, uh, the moral to the physical is three as to one. And what he meant by that is the morale, the elan of a military and its leaders counts for a lot. And you're seeing that. And you're seeing the people willing to fight in the, in the cities. And you're absolutely right. He's really picked up a little bit more than he can chew, meaning Putin. And he's now got a population that doesn't dislike the Russians. They hate the Russians. And he will never be able to pacify that country, ever. So he's now got himself a problem. If he tries to occupy it, there will be an insurrection, an unconventional war that will go on for years, if not generations. So and he's got what? to look like, for an off-ramp. What's he trying to achieve? And what would – so you just mentioned it before I cut you off. You mentioned he needs to look for an off-ramp, he being Putin again here. What is that off-ramp? What would be, in your mind, an acceptable off-ramp to allow the Russians maybe to save a little bit of face and end this war before it gets worse, but also without giving away to Russia anything really of strategic value or, or to uh, do something that would have validated the, the invasion in the first place. You don't want to reward this, obviously, but you also want to end it. What does that look like? Well, I think here's what it looks like from the Russians' viewpoint. If you have, and this is probably the worst case for Putin because his survival politically probably will depend on this. Is if he could say to the to the uh, Ukrainians, okay, acknowledge the fact that I now own Crimea in perpetuity, and I also own the and will keep also the two breakaway republics forever, and and then you can keep the government. Yeah, the Donbass and maybe that's in the east. That's right. But I don't think Zelensky will do that. I think Zelensky is now – he understands he may have a winning hand, and I don't think he's going to give in to him. The, the, the middle ground may be this. The middle ground may be Zelensky telling Putin, look, I will acknowledge the fact that it will not be part of NATO for the next 20 years. I'll be like Finland uh, and, and understand that I'm going to be a, a neutral country – not aligned to anybody, but be a bridge between East and West and go with it that way. And I don't think uh, Zelensky is going to accept the fact that, that uh, he will give Putin what Putin wants. That's the reason I'm a little bit concerned, because Putin will go all in, all in meaning he'll probably use massive artillery to, to just hammer the city of Kiev, and that'll be a brutal and, uh, and a fight that the, the world will see. Or he may go to the real extreme, which is the one that concerns me, is the, the Russian philosophy is to escalate to de-escalate. And he's got uh, low-yield, what we call low-yield 
uh, nuclear weapons. We don't have that in our inventory. We got rid of that 20, 30 years ago when we had a system called the Davy Crockett because we didn't want a sergeant starting World War III. But he has those weapons, and he may have a demonstration. In other words, you shoot a nuclear weapon, a small yield weapon, well under a kiloton, into an empty field or into a body of water and show that he means business. And that's the escalation I worry about because then you don't know where it's going because to well, what me, about there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. Yeah, I mean, just, just even you mentioning nukes is, is a chilling thing. You jump from heavy, heavy artillery and shelling of Kiev, and they're doing that, of course, in these other cities already. Then there's the nuclear option, which, I mean, God forbid, there's something in between, potentially, chemical or biological weapons. There's reports about that. The White House is even talking about it. What do you make of those reports and that possibility? Yeah, you know, I think I think – Anything involved in the area of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, and that involves nuclear, chemical, biological, I think all of those are off-limit. And we, we need to signal that to them, and we have, a, have had a well, – Off-limits to us. Hang on. just Sorry, that. sorry, General. Let's just jump in. They're, clearly, they should be off-limits. They're off-limits to yeah. us. They're off-limits to civilized people, but they're also right. uncivilized people. And the Russians allowed it to happen and arguably you know, have – participated in it in Syria just recently. The question is, is it off limits to them? Is it off limits to Putin in his own mind? Well, you have to make it clear to him it is. And, and we did that, you know, when you mentioned Syria, when when uh, Obama said that he drew a red line on nerve gas used against Syrian civilians, and they did it and didn't do anything, we didn't do that in the Trump administration. What happened, as soon as they did that, we went after the airfield that they came from, put 75 uh, TLAM you know, missiles into the airfield. That happened to be a co Co-Russian uh, co Syrian airfield, and we picked up the phone and called Putin and said, "Knock that stuff off." He didn't do it again, and and when this administration, when uh, Putin made the comment about special combat readiness of raising his, his uh, nuclear forces, we should have countered with that. Instead of can instead of what we did was cancel a scheduled. Uh, ICBM test, we should have said, oh, you want to go there? Let me show you what we're going to do. We have a thing called defense condition. It goes one to five, five being in the lowest, one being the highest. Uh, we're generally at four. Uh, but we've raised that before. We've gone to three during the 9-11. We went to two during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's telling him, look, we're going to match you king for king, ace for ace. Don't go there. We, you know, as, as President Trump uh, told Kim Jong-un, when Kim Jong-un said, I've got a red button, Trump said to him, well, yeah, I've got a red button, too, and mine's bigger than yours. And, and we should have countered that. We should have let him know very clearly, don't go there, because now we, nobody's told him don't go there. Uh, and so, we should have made it understandable to him. If you go there, you're violating the norms of human decency, the laws of land warfare, and just the world in general. So we didn't do that. We should have done it. I want to ask you one more question, and it goes to what we are apparently holding up in terms of or vis-a-vis -vis aid to the Ukrainians, military aid to the Ukrainians. Zelensky keeps asking for a no-fly zone. We keep saying no. I think that's the right call because that's a war with Russia. We don't want a war with Russia. What we have been doing is arming the Ukrainians with a lot of, you know, javelins and, and stingers and other things to very effectively take out the Russians. And we've been seeing how that's been going. Um, and a lot of that has been encouraging. Then there's the matter of these fighter jets where the Europeans were trying to strike a deal to get some fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, to help in you know the battle of the skies, and Ukraine said, "Great, we'll take them," and then it fell apart. Then the Polish government said, "Okay, no, actually, yes, we have a couple dozen here. I think it's twenty or thirty. 
of these MiGs. Let's get them to Germany, to a U.S. base, and then you can come pick them up. And what I'm trying to figure out is the Biden administration's position on this and, and why they've been saying the things that they've been saying. Our secretary of state in cut 17, this was just on Sunday. He was asked about this. Listen. What more can the United States do here if, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets? Does that get a green light from the U.S., or are you afraid that that will escalate tension? No, that, that, that gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about okay, what we so might we can, do. Okay, so we can stop it right there, but that's Blinken. Our top diplomat saying that gets a green light. If the Poles want to do it, green light from us, then the Poles said, okay, we're going to do it. Let's see the green light. And then there's a red light from the Biden administration. They announced yesterday at the Pentagon, it's too risky. We don't assess that it would be very helpful. Uh, and we don't support any of these plans to get these Polish planes to Ukraine. What do we make of that? What happened here? I think it was a guy who's a tremendously uncoordinated action. Uh, it was unfortunate. You can really see that, that the two state defense weren't seen it the same way, which is a huge mistake, should have been resolved. Look, I'm a big believer in giving them the jets. The fact is, I think I'd give the Ukrainians rocks if they asked them. And there's 29 of these fourth-generation fighters. They're good fighters. The, the Ukrainians are used to fighting them with them. And look, here's the other added thing that nobody really realizes. Those are NATO-built air, aircraft, meaning the avionics can talk throughout NATO, meaning they talk to the airborne early warnings systems. So if they came came to push on this, that we could have netted those aircraft if need be, if something happened with our uh, early warning uh, aircraft that are flying right now over the borders looking into the, the combat zone. So I would say give it to them. And I don't know, we just made ourselves look a little bit stupid. And they talk about giving them that. Well, not just a little bit. It has, to be, it has to be so <laughs> frustrating for the Ukrainians yeah. to have someone offering and for the U.S. government to say, OK, yes, let's do it. And then for another part of the Biden administration to say, actually, no, never mind. And Politico reported today that intelligence defense said, oh, actually, we're worried about this looking escalatory. Let's not do it. And Biden ultimately made the decision to not allow this to happen. And so if you're Zelensky, I think, of course, you've just got to be out of your mind frustrated. And we'll be watching very closely to see if that changes, if there's some other way devised to get those jets to the Ukrainians or not. But as I said yesterday, the clock is very much ticking and it's a dire situation over there. Our guest has been Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired Fox News contributor. His book is War by Other Means. General, really appreciate this. Let's have you back soon, I hope. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. You bet. We'll step aside. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Okay. <laughs> a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> okay, so this time. <laughs> oh, Sky Benson show that uh, you know who that was. That was our vice president, who's in Poland, amid this kerfuffle with the poles and. The offer to the Ukrainians that has now been deep-sixed by President Biden, they sent our very best, the Veep, over there to try to, I don't know what, do something. She's not there to strike a deal. I guess she was just there to, like, lend some support. So she did a press conference, and that was this awkward moment where they were asked, she and the Polish leader were asked some really tough questions about refugees, just like weighty stuff. 
And then there was a, an awkward pause where they looked at each other. Who wants to go first? They both briefly laughed awkwardly. All right, fine. But then that happened. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Big laugh from Harris who just kept chuckling. I don't know what it is with that, but she can't do that. The nervous laughter thing is really not a good look, especially in response to a question about Ukrainian refugees coming to Poland because they're getting killed by Russian forces. You just have to have more wherewithal, self-awareness, discipline. And then on the substance of that press conference, our colleague Trey Yanks, who doesn't give his opinion very often, he was uh, very critical of what he heard. Cut 19. This joint press conference came across like a bilateral check-in. It was detached from the reality on the ground. As the pair spoke, there were air raid sirens sounding in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. We heard this diplomatic and political speak from Vice President Harris. The Ukrainian people don't need that. They need anti-tank missiles. They need anti-aircraft batteries. I mean, we heard just all of this talk that you hear out of Washington about cooperation and friendship and to be nimble and swift in the response and understanding and appreciating. There are people dying as we speak on the ground in Ukraine. Across this country, thousands of people. And the capital is being targeted from the ground and the air. Yeah, they need planes as well, I would point out. Detached from reality and the big laugh. Oh, bad, bad stuff. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. I read today a story in the New York Times that is arresting and brutal. It recounts the story of a mother and her children who were killed trying to evacuate their hometown in Ukraine amid Russian shelling. They were killed by mortar fire as they were running near a bridge trying to get out. I had seen the photos of these people with their luggage and their bodies in the street. This is the backstory, and the Times reports it in detail. I want to read somewhat extensively from it because this is the human portrait of what's happening. This is the human cost to completely innocent people of the Russian invasion, which is brutal and pointless and completely based on lies and no justifiable excuse. When I say openly that I am rooting for Ukraine in this conflict and rooting against the Russians, rooting against the Kremlin, rooting against Putin, this is part of the reason why. The headline is, they died by a bridge in Ukraine. This is their story. By the way, if you've got maybe kids listening with you, this is not an easy story to listen to. If you've lost someone close to you, this might be tough. I'm just giving you a bit of a warning there before I start reading. It's tough in general. They met in high school but became a couple years later after meeting again on a dance floor at a Ukrainian nightclub. Married in 2001, they lived in a bedroom community outside Kiev in an apartment with their two children and their dogs, Benz and Cake. She was an accountant. He was a computer programmer. Serhi and Tetiana Parabinius owned a Chevrolet minivan. They shared a country home with friends. 
She was a dedicated gardener and an avid skier. She had just returned from a ski trip to Georgia. And then late last month, Georgia invaded Ukraine, and the fighting quickly moved toward Kiev. It wasn't long before artillery shells were crashing into their neighborhood. Think about this. Imagine this as your life. One night, a shell hit their building, prompting Ms. Parabenius and the children to move to the basement. Finally, with her husband away in eastern Ukraine, tending to his ailing mother, we find out later in the story she has Alzheimer's, just a terrible disease. He's in the east trying to help his own mother. She, his wife, decided it was time to take her children and run. They didn't make it. The mother, 43, and her two children, Makitia, 18, and Alisa, 9, along with a church volunteer who was helping them, Anatoly Berenzi, 26 years old, were killed on Sunday as they dashed across the concrete remnants of a damaged bridge in their town of Irpin, trying to evacuate to Kiev. Their luggage, a blue roller suitcase, a gray suitcase, and some backpacks, were scattered near their bodies, along with a green carrying case for a small dog. The dog was barking. They were four people among the many who tried to cross that bridge last weekend, but their deaths resonated far beyond their Ukrainian suburb. A photograph of the family and the church volunteer, lying bloodied and motionless, taken by a New York Times photographer, Lindsay Adario, encapsulates the indiscriminate slaughter by an invading Russian army that has increasingly targeted heavily populated civilian areas. The family's lives in their final hours were described in an interview by the surviving husband and a godmother. They learned of the death, their family, on Twitter from posts by Ukrainians. The story writes that the father broke down in tears during the interview. He said he told his wife the night before that she died he was sorry he wasn't with her. I told her, forgive me that I couldn't defend you. I tried to care for one person, and it meant I cannot protect you. She said, don't worry, I will get out. After she didn't, he said it felt it was important that their deaths be recorded in photographs and video. Quote, the whole world should know what is happening here, he said. This family had already been displaced by war once in 2014. They were living in the east of Ukraine, and Russia fomented a separatist uprising. They moved to Kiev to escape the fighting and started rebuilding their lives. When Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine last month, they could hardly believe it was happening again. And I'm just scrolling through this story. This young, beautiful mother... Her son, who's 18, but he looks like he's about 14, like a young high school student, a young, innocent daughter, nine years old, all dead, trying to make a run for it after their building had already been hit. They were running across a partially demolished bridge, and they were hit again. Through the night, the father, quote, had tried to monitor his wife's location using a locator app on their phones. But it showed nothing. The family was in a basement without cell reception. So imagine being separated from your family, trying to figure out where they are, knowing that they're going to try to evacuate, and you can only really track it by the location monitor on your spouse's phone. 
Around dawn, he said, he saw one ping showing them at their home address. But nothing showed them moving. Cell phone coverage had become too spotty in the town. The next ping of a location came around 10 o'clock Sunday morning. It was at a clinical hospital in Kiev. Something had gone wrong. He called his wife's number. It was ringing, but nobody answered. He called his children's phone numbers with the same result. Imagine the panic. Imagine the catastrophizing and worrying about the worst that may have happened, and in this case, it had. A half hour or so later, he saw a post on Twitter saying a family had been killed in a mortar strike on the evacuation route out of Irpin, which was their town. A short time later, another Twitter post appeared. It was a picture. Quote, I recognize the luggage, and that is how I knew, he said. Just a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. These little shards of clues and evidence showing up on social media. That's the way you find out your entire family has been killed. When the mortar shell hit the family, were about 12 yards away from the crater left by the mortar. They had no chance. The explosion sent out a spray of hundreds of jagged, metallic shrapnel shards. Their bodies slumped onto the muddy street beside a monument to World War II dead. A plaque on the monument read, quote, Eternal memory to those who fell for the fatherland in the Great Patriotic War. The mother's parents were behind the mother and children and were unharmed. So they had to witness this. They were there. The following day, a snowstorm blew over Kiev. The suitcases, one of which had been knocked open by the explosion or opened later by passersby, lay covered in snow on a street beside bloodstains. It held only clothes a pink child's tank top, sweatpants, yellow and blue child-sized socks, apparently for Elisa. When asked to describe his wife, the husband slumped in his chair. Over their long marriage, he said, quote, we refurbished three apartments and never argued once. And the story ends this way. After the death of his family, the now widower, his whole family gone, traveled into Russia, and flew to the city of Kaliningrad to cross a land border into Poland. At the Russia-Poland border, he said Russian guards questioned him, took his fingerprints, seemed ready to arrest him for unclear reasons, though he was eventually allowed to travel on. He said he told them, quote, My whole family died in what you call a special operation and we call a war. You can do what you want with me. I have nothing left to lose. End quote. And that's the last word in this story. A snapshot of one family, almost all of whom were wiped out in an instant. They had moved once because of Russian aggression. Then they were fleeing because of an even worse bout of Russian aggression. There's no defending this. There is a good guy and a bad guy here. And the bad guy is in Moscow ordering this barbarity. And we talk about troop movements and convoys and 
fighter jets and sanctions and all these high-level issues when it comes to war and peace, sometimes you have to get to the human level all the way down to individual people to really remember what the costs of war are. And there are countless other people exactly like this. And by the way, a lot of other families, thousands of families back in Russia, who are learning that their loved ones are now dead, killed for what? A lot of them didn't even know that they were being deployed to Ukraine, didn't know that there was an invasion. They thought they were going for training exercises because they weren't trained in a lot of cases. Now, if they come home, they're going to come home in body bags. And to what end? What are they trying to achieve here? What do they think they're going to actually get out of this? Who knows? I can't speculate what's in Putin's brain. But what we can see clearly is what his decisions have wrought already. And depending on the level of ruthlessness and desperation ahead, it could get worse. It very well could. This is really brutal. This is really sobering. This is not fun radio. This is not a fun story to read to you. But I felt like I had an obligation to do it. This to paint a portrait of the afflicted. This is why our thoughts and our prayers are with the people of Ukraine. I cannot imagine being in this man's shoes. And tragically, he's not alone. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. So I saw two news items today on the COVID front. And it does sort of seem like that issue has largely vanished from the news media in recent days. I understand there's a war on and there's a lot of other things happening, but been a lot more coverage that I've seen, at least, of the LGBT-related bill in Florida than the pandemic. Maybe that's just, uh, maybe I've missed something there. But that's been my observation, at least. Where's Fauci? I mean, Fauci was just a kind of uh, omnipresent figure on certain TV networks, for example. And I haven't seen him interviewed in quite a while. I mean, maybe he's out there just got to be itching for the cameras again and the bright lights. He does seem to like them. But on COVID, I saw these two news items today. Number one, it's being widely reported, according to various outlets and citing U.S. officials, that the Biden administration is going to extend again the mask mandate for transit. So trains and airplanes, for example, by another month. It was going to expire, but it's not going to expire. They're going to extend it. So more weeks of this. Now, part of that might be because, for instance, the flight attendants union has been, at least in the recent past, lobbying for an extension. I mean, I think it's dead wrong. It's not scientific, but we know that certain powerful unions have wielded a lot of influence over the changing science, if we want to call it that, over the last year or so of the Biden administration. 
Now, at the same time, they're extending this for another five weeks or four weeks, whatever it's going to be. So I think it might be through the end of April. It hasn't been officially announced yet, but this is what they're saying is going to happen. They are at the CDC carefully reviewing the situation and might be altering their guidance on mask mandates for the purposes of, you know, in transit, airplanes, trains, after this next extension. So next month, the guidance could change. And I have to admit, I am totally baffled once again by the logic here. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist, although we have doctors on the show all the time, including just yesterday, talking about these issues. Now, follow with me here. Last month, the CDC updated its guidance, changed the science, totally changed the sort of metrics by which they're putting regions of the country into red zones or whatever. They just changed the numbers. And, oh, overnight, it went from the whole country's in deep trouble to actually the whole country's mostly fine now. They changed their metrics, which I'm not actually opposed to. I'm glad they made the change. It's just ridiculously belated. And they did it right before the State of the Union address, where they also changed their mask recommendations. So essentially, effectively, on the eve of this big political speech for the president, State of the Union, the masking science, I guess, changed. So you had a bunch of 70 and 80-year-olds or, you know, septuagenarians, octogenarians, many of them, crowded into this room, packed in there. Most of them not wearing masks because the science had changed, the guidance had changed, and you could be indoors without your mask on. Now, why on earth is that new guidance not simply applied to getting on an airplane or sitting in an airport? Why can two 80-something-year-old senators hang out in the House chamber waiting for the president, chatting, shaking hands, air kisses back and forth? Why is that okay? But a fully vaccinated family with two kids sitting in an airport, they have to wear a mask at all times unless they're eating, unless they get scolded by someone. Then you get on an airplane. Have there been any major – think about this. Over the last two years, have there been any major news stories of a big outbreak of COVID on a commercial flight? Are airplane super spreaders, you would think maybe at the very beginning, if we knew nothing else, people packed into a little metal cylinder in the sky, all right on top of each other, that would maybe be very bad for the spread of COVID, except that's not what happened. And part of it's because the air filtration, the air circulation on these airplanes has actually done a great service, and we have not seen any to my recollection, certainly many stories about outbreaks or super spreaders on planes. So it's one of the safest places it would seem you can be on an airplane when it comes to COVID and contracting COVID. And yet we still have mask requirements for people on airplanes, but not other indoor spaces. Why? Oh, we'll get to that next month. Why next month? What science are you talking about here? If the science changed for indoor spaces elsewhere, why not airplanes? It's like in New York City where they've lifted the mask mandate for kids in schools except for pre-K, except for preschoolers who are the least at risk. It's like we're doing things exactly backwards in this country in a lot of respects. And it kind of feels that way because we are. 
California officials, by the way, raided some preschools for like interviewing two-year-olds over masks. We've lost our minds. I don't know if we're ever going to get them back. And we're going to keep following it on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast on demand for free whenever you want it. That's around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I'm a big fan of it. I might have some this weekend, in fact. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. Many of you have tried it. If you haven't yet, give it a shot. If you're 21 plus only, of course. You can find out where they're sold near you as they expand. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Happy to welcome back to The Guy Benson Show, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. His book is Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. Congressman, good to have you back here. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. wanted to congratulate you, by the way. Last week, there were the primaries in Texas. We covered several of the outcomes. I was told by some people on Twitter that you were in real trouble in your primary. Turns out the voters uh, had different ideas. Yeah, yeah, you know, we have our haters, but uh, they are paper tigers. You know, we, we won, of course, overwhelmingly, but uh, also got some of my, uh, r- some real good candidates across the finish line uh, without a runoff, which is very difficult in open seats. We got Wesley Hunt, we got Morgan Luttrell, going to be great members of Congress, uh, great members of the Texas delegation. So all around it. And, and of course, they had their haters, too. Uh, and uh, we, we overcame that uh, with, with overwhelming success. We're really happy about it. I'm also really happy that Texas has early primaries. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good to get it done with. Yeah, it's over now. You can focus on the Democrats and the general election. Let's talk about domestic politics and the economy here at home to start. You've seen the New numbers out today, the February inflation numbers, they're awful, worse in 40 years again. And we're seeing also the price at the pump going up and up and up. And the talking point that has emerged from the left, from the White House on down is, well, this is Putin. This is on Putin and really the oil companies. If you want to blame anyone, it's Russia and the oil companies. I wonder what you make of that, Congressman. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Look, obviously, we all know inflation's been hitting us now for about a year. Oil prices have been increasing for about a year, along with gas prices, of course. Is there a spike after the Ukraine invasion? Yeah, of course there is. Uh, but that's certainly not the base cause of it. You know, the base cause of it is, well, it's, it's I think, Democrat liberal lockdowns, um, not just the United States, but throughout the world. Those permanently disfigured supply chains. And you can't just remake supply chains and, and remake um, a base of production overnight. It's difficult, especially after a, a really quick increase in demand and people go back to the normal. So this was a difficult problem from the get-go. And, 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 and if and the only way to solve it in many cases is to turn back the, the hands of time and don't do stupid things like lock down the entire world. Um, you know, but, but moving along, what you can do to, to help mitigate these effects is – is is 
tackle one of the things that causes prices to increase the most, which is the cost of energy. Because the cost of energy affects everything, everything from producing goods to transporting those goods. And so if you want cheaper energy, you have to increase supply. That is, that is basic economics. And this administration has done everything in its power over the last year to vilify and destroy our American oil and gas industry while asking places like Venezuela, Saudi Arabia – uh, to increase their production. It, it, this is such backwards thinking. Now, they're blaming – you mentioned they're blaming the oil companies now. They, they've come out with this really uh, terrible talking point that, that um, you know, 9,000 permits are ready to drill. Well, they don't understand how permitting works. It, the permit is not the only thing involved in this. There's a, there's a, there's a good two-year period where once they get the permit, they have to figure out what, to, what, what they can accomplish with that. And that, that's based on economics, that's based on geology, that's based on rights-of-ways permitting, it's based on whether they can get the leasing around the area where there's oil. It is extremely complicated, and it takes a lot of money and time and investment. And so to disingenuously say, oh, there's 9,000 permits, these people just want to, just, just, they just want to watch the price of oil go up, that is not true. We, we talk to the industry daily. They are ready to go. They are ready to, to create this American energy dominance that we need. And what does that do for us? Well, it, it, it of course, increases supply and therefore reduces prices. It also puts us in a better, a better geostrategic position. And one of the reasons Putin was able to do this, to able to invade Ukraine, was because he knows that the Europeans are, are unwilling to act forcefully because they're so reliant on Russia for energy. What if the Re Europeans were reliant on us for that energy? It would completely change the dynamics. We would not be reliant on Russia. It would. It, it just. It's, it's common sense, and, and, and unfortunately, you have to you have to go back in time to change it now. But we, we, we'd rather at least do the right thing now. And the Biden administration continues to refuse to do that. Yeah, and they're pretending though that that's not really their hostility to domestic production that's driving any of this. And I opened the show on this today. All the examples of all the things that they've said. And then they followed up with action that are openly hostile to domestic production. And they're kind of saying, oh, no, that's all sort of a figment of your imagination. It's just these oil companies who have the opportunity to drill. They just don't want to because greedy profits or something. It doesn't make any sense. You said they don't understand how the permitting works. And, of course, there's the whole they're, – they're regulated to death in a lot of cases and just you know hammered with these costs from this administration and and policies emanating from this administration i would just say i think some of them absolutely do understand how this process works they're just counting on the american people not understanding and buying this story that they're telling instead i just don't think it's going to work i think people are willing to say yes russia has something to do with the latest spike and next month's numbers will be probably very bad because of it and some of that's because of putin but I don't think they're going to just say, oh, yeah, what we've just seen for the last year, that's Putin and the oil companies. It, it seems too weak to work from my perspective. Yeah, look, I, I think you're right on both fronts. These people are not they're not stupid. They, they know the truth, but they're willing to lie to you about it anyway. Um, and they think the American people don't know. But I, I agree with you. I think American people overwhelmingly understand that, that the main cause of this is is. Um, you know, this, this, our, our own internal battle with our own industry. And there's plenty of proof of this. I mean, the first thing Biden did was cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. That really signaled to the industry what was to come. They haven't approved right. any onshore uh, leases, any onshore leases in, um, it will, at all uh, during his presidency. Um, so, so you have, uh, and you have various new regulations that have come up as well. 
So this puts a chilling effect on investment in a, in a very serious way. It, it takes a lot of investment, a lot of money, a lot of time to actually go and do the exploration needed to start production. Um, but they won't permit new pipelines. <laughs> they, they say it adds to the carbon footprint. Of course, that gas and oil gets out no matter what. The question is, do you want to, do you want to transport it in the most safest, uh, cleanest, efficient way possible, which is a pipeline? But, you know, the, the pipeline seems icky to the far left, and so they, they're against it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's almost like a religion with them, and it's very frustrating. Let's talk about geopolitical affairs starting in Ukraine. Of course, we've already mentioned it. This invasion from the Russians is now entering its third week, more than two weeks in. We had Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on this show last hour. He recounted a number of the reasons why and laid out why this is not going according to plan for the Russians for numerous reasons. I asked him also about this whole flap of involving jets from Poland, where we had our Secretary of State say on national television on Sunday, if an EU country offered fighter jets to the Ukrainians, that would be a green light from the United States. And then we've given them the red light when it was actually proposed. Do you have any insight, any uh, visibility into what's going on there? Because it seems like a black eye and an embarrassment at a very bad time. It, it certainly does. I don't know if I have a uh, special insight, but I, I'll tell you what, I'm disgusted by it. I'm absolutely disgusted by it. I, I, I cannot believe that we're not willing to do the easiest things to, to help the Ukrainians. Now, to your, to your earlier point, this is not what the Russians thought it would be. This isn't what the world thought it would be. Uh, the world probably thought that uh, Russia would take over rather quickly and dominate in a ground war, and it has fa- utterly failed to do so. The only place Russia has an advantage is in the air, and it's quite easy to reverse that advantage. I mean, we didn't think it would be easy, but it turns out it is. And all you have to do is give the Ukrainians the tools they need to fight back. And if we're not willing to do that, I don't, I don't know what has happened to the backbone of our country. I really don't, because you got people on both sides who just who think that anything is escalatory. Escalate to what? To a ground war where <clears throat> European capitals are being bombed? You mean that kind of escalation? Yeah, civilians are being murdered right in now. the streets. You mean that kind of escalation? It's already escalated. Wake up! And 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 all they're asking for is some tools. And, and what really took me aback was their, their, their explanation of this was basically parroting Russian talking points, which is this would be a serious escalation. Why? Because we give Ukrainians tools to kill Russians? We've already been doing that. What do you think javelins are? You know, it's, it's, it, we, we've given them anti-aircraft missiles. We've given them anti-tank missiles. Uh, they, those are killing Russians, and they're not going to do anything about it. And I, I don't know why we keep believing Putin's tough talk. He is a paper tiger. He's proven that. Can't even he can't even conduct a serious ground war in a neighboring state. Uh, this this is a reversible situation. It looks like Europeans, like the Poles, are willing to step up, and they just need a little bit of a push from the United and that's States. What, and, and I'm just disgusted by whether I'm willing to do that's that. That's what Zelensky has been begging for. He's asking for the uh, air support as well, the no-fly zone. That's a different story. That would mean war, as I keep saying. I'm against that, but this seems like something at the very least that we could get done. So far, we are standing in the way of it. Two more questions, one related to this. It seems like the American people are quite united on this front against Putin in favor of the people of Ukraine. There's a lot of admiration for Zelensky and his government, his bravery. Although I did see one of your colleagues, a Republican colleague in the House, 
today or yesterday said that Zelensky's a thug, his government is terrible and evil and a, a woke a woke government. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Why why any members of the United States Congress would be attacking Zelensky at this moment? Yeah, I was I was appalled by that. It's it's mis- miseducation fundamentally getting your news from from you know online influencers instead of reality. Um couldn't believe it. Like we 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 have to acknowledge that there is this sort of Putin apologism happening um, throughout throughout the country on both sides, and it's not good. We we have to stop just as a country. Let's stop falling for Putin's talking points. Um, you know, on, on the I mean, left, it's, it's a pretty small fringe, right? It's a pretty small fringe. Is the good news? It is. It it, it is. It is loud and small. But you know, look, it, 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 one of the main reasons the environmental left has come out so hard against natural gas is because it's because Russia has funded that kind of opposition, funded those that that kind of propaganda. You know, so th- they are very smart, and they've been doing this to our country for decades. And we have to stop falling for it. Um, and, and these talking points about Zelensky and oh, Ukraine's so corrupt. So what? They deserve to have their civilians bombed? I mean, is that is that like the logic here? I mean, I, I, I mean, like, I just don't get it. it, it you know, just because they're supposedly they're woke, they don't seem that woke to me. But okay, does, does that mean they deserve to get killed? It, it just I mean, come on, you know. So like, I think, like you said, I think the majority of the American people understand what's really happening here and what what the truth is. Last question: It's on Iran. There is late breaking developments out of Vienna, where there's some reports that this seemingly done deal between the Biden administration and the Iranian regime orchestrated and choreographed and undertaken by the Russians on our behalf, which is just still mind-blowing to me, is actually potentially on the rocks, that it's on the brink of falling apart because I guess the Russians pressing their advantage here and given their desperation in Ukraine, they're trying to shoehorn, this is the reporting, some sanctions relief for themselves into the negotiation and that may be derailing the whole thing. And now the report is that the Russians and the Iranians are going to go huddle separately to try to figure things out, uh, you know, between those two countries. The Iranians won't speak to us. That's why we're going through the Russians and the Biden people are still relying on Kremlin dip- diplomats to do this, which is wild. The Russians know what's in it. The Chinese know what's in it. The Iranians know what's in it. The Congress does not have the details yet. And so I am hopeful that this Russian overplaying of the hand potentially might pull the plug on the whole thing. That would be great news. I am still extremely concerned about the process up to this point. I'm extremely concerned about the substance that's being reported of what would be in there, apparently just a shocking giveaway to Iran for almost nothing in return at all. And I'm very concerned that our elected representatives in the legislative branch may not even have an opportunity to look at it or vote on it before some of these billions start flowing if this gets the sign-off from President Biden. I noticed uh, a headline today that there's at least a dozen House Democrats saying, no, we are really struggling with this. We can't imagine, based on what we're hearing, supporting this. Uh, Many Republicans, I think every Republican, feels the same way. We have about a minute or two left here, Congressman. Quickly, what are your thoughts on this negotiation? What are you hearing? And is there any way to force the White House's hand to ensure that there's at least a vote in Congress on this thing before any implementation steps move forward if there is an agreement? 
Sure. Well, well, to that to that detailed second question, it, it takes Democrats to stand up to their own president, and 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 then we could have leverage. But it will take Democrat support to do that. Um, it, it is mind blowing that they that they haven't paused this, right? Be, because Russia is the primary arbiter between us and Iran, it's amazing that we're still having these discussions. And it's not necessary. There, there, what, is, what is the urgency here? We pulled out years ago, and what happened? Nothing. <laughs> in, in fact, in fact what, what, what was happening was probably a better situation, a, a better stalemate with Iran, where some kind of deterrence was established under Donald Trump uh, against Iran. So, you know, there, there, is, there is no option here except to increase your leverage, increase your leverage accordingly, and use that to get the Iranians to do what you want. That's what works in Middle East politics. This sort of touchy-feely, naive belief that if you're just really nice to them, if you kind of go to them with open arms and open hands, that they will, that will, they will reciprocate, that is naive. That, that, no, it's, that it's... works maybe in some Western civilization type of setting. It does not work in the Middle East. You have to understand who these people are and how they think. Well, and it's it's right. not just naive. It's In this case, it's reckless and would be, I think, extremely dangerous for American national security, for Israel, and for others in the neighborhood. We're up on a hard break, Congressman. We've got to run. We always appreciate your time. Dan Crenshaw, Republican, Texas. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. just want to bring you a couple stories that we are monitoring and following at this hour. Number one, it has been reported by ESPN's Jeff Passan, who's been on this show a number of times, that Major League Baseball has struck some sort of tentative deal with the players, and it looks like they're going to be able to save the season. Some of it's been delayed and canceled, but it looks like a deal has been reached. Details are not yet forthcoming. We will put potentially have more on that tomorrow, maybe even with Jeff himself. So that's uh, late breaking this afternoon. Also, our colleague Matt Finn is following the sentencing of Jussie Smollett in Chicago. That is happening right now. We have Matt on the show here tomorrow to tell us about that sentencing and all the drama leading up to it. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss the economy, energy, inflation, and more with Larry Kudlow on the other side of this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Joining us now, Larry Kudlow, host of Fox Business Network's Kudlow, every day at 4 p.m. Eastern, weekdays, of course, FBN. He's the former director of the National Economic Council under the Trump administration and... We enjoy having him on whenever he's able to join us, including today. Larry, welcome back. Hi, Guy. Thank you. You bet. So I want to start here with the news today on inflation, another terrible number, you know, the worst in 40 years again. I know that there's a lot of blame shift. The White House is trying to put this on Vladimir Putin, and I'm all for blaming Putin for all sorts of things, but not February inflation. That's their talking point here. Give us your sense of the inflation problem, how it affects people, how it affects the economy, and how this White House is trying to deflect responsibility. Well, on that last point, I mean, look, the inflation is spread over everything. I mean, prices are rising everywhere. Food, energy, shelter, housing, apparel, cars, 
health care, recreation. I mean, you can't pin it on Vladimir Putin. And for that matter, you can't pin it on energy. If you take energy out, Ralph, uh, it's 6.6 percent for the last 12 months. In fact, if you took gasoline out, it's 6.4 percent, guys. So 7.9 overall. But I'm just saying prices are rising everywhere. And that was last month. This is a function of too much spending, too many deficits, the Federal Reserve monetizing, accommodating, pumping in the money supply. This has very little to do with Vladimir Putin. Next month, you're going to get the Putin hit in, you know, in spades. It'll be a big number. But don't be fooled by that because uh, inflation is widespread and it's going to be very difficult to stop. Ordinary people are going to suffer enormously. Uh, again, not just um, gasoline and, and grocery stores. Everything is rising substantially. We haven't seen this in four decades. And it's going to damage the economy. It's already damaging the economy because the inflation tax is affecting really middle-income folks whose real wages are falling. And that's a big problem. ABC News tweeted earlier today that President Biden is blaming the high inflation rates in part on Russian sanctions. And then they quote him. And here's a quote. Let me read it to you. Responding to the tweet, well, no, these are February numbers and only include a small Russia effect. This is Biden's inflation and he needs to own it. That is not a quote from Mitch McConnell. That is not a quote from Kevin McCarthy. That is a quote from Stephen Ratner. Larry, of the Obama administration. I mean, this is a truthful thing that he's saying. When you even have Democratic economists who are willing to be honest and saying this is kind of insulting spin, that I think is an indicator of how weak and how craven that spin is. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to fool anybody. Uh, Ratner's been good on this. Not always, but on this. Larry Summers, same story. Jason Furman, all Democrat economists. And um, Summers and Furman are actually first-rate economists. They're both friends of mine. I mean, look, this story started a year ago. You right. know, the last, uh, the, the last reading in December of 2020 for the 12-month change was 2%. So this has been building for over a year, way before Putin. And really, energy prices have been rising for over a year. And that's a function of the fact that Biden's gone to war with oil and gas producers. Yeah, I actually want to come back to the energy stuff, because I think the energy thing is a huge debate that we're having right now. We will return to that in a second. But before we do that, I just want to follow up, because you mentioned Larry Summers and how far back this problem is in terms of the roots of it. And when it first started to emerge, I remember back then, it's not that long ago, but we all remember that Summers actually wrote some op-eds and went out and gave interviews and was warning about all this spending, warning about inflation. And at the time, and this was for quite a while, the White House was extremely dismissive of his concerns. He was attacked by a bunch of progressives saying, oh, this is hysteria. The talking point for a while there was, oh, it'll be transitory. What does he know? They finally retired transitory a couple months ago. But I wonder at some point, is there vindication within the center-left coalition for guys like Ratner and especially Summers, who were sounding this alarm for a while to be ignored at every turn until it was too late, basically. Yeah, well, it's too late now. But unfortunately for for Summers and those guys, it's a progressive 
Democratic Party. It's a progressive left Democratic Party. I mean, look, you know, Biden hasn't relented. Even the State of the Union, he tried to sell his massive social spending package, Mm -hmm. which would have put another $5 trillion into circulation. So my point is those guys are right. I give them credit, um, thanking them for joining us on the conservative side who complained about deficit spending and money creation. But the Democratic Party is not their Democratic Party. That's unfortunate, by the way, but that's the case. And, uh, you know, this is a a year-long problem. And I can just tell you, Guy, it's going to be very difficult to stop this, very difficult. It's going to take several years. There's going to be a lot of pain in the economy. Years. And and several years to get rid of this inflation. The target by the Fed is 2%. The question is, in my lifetime, will we ever see 2% inflation again? That's an important question. And it will not end well. It will end in a recession. Uh, I don't know that that will happen this year. But 23 and 24 are pretty good recession target years. Well, that's very disconcerting. What could be done? I mean, setting aside the don't make it worse with a bunch of new spending, and I'm glad you mentioned Build Back Better. He didn't call it that in the State of the Union address, but he was sort of enumerating a bunch of the big ticket items again, saying these are the things that we have to do, and he was treating them as if they were solutions to the inflation issue, which was pretty wild. I was imagining you in your living room somewhere watching the TV shouting, save America, kill the bill, because he was trying to revive yes. it there, Larry. But <laughs> aside yes. from aside from, let's say, saving America and killing the bill and making sure it's still dead, which hopefully it is, and not making problems worse with all this indiscriminate, wasteful spending, are there proactive steps that could be taken to mitigate this problem uh, or at least bring it down or or not create a multi-year pain fest for the American people involving inflation? Well, it may be too late for avoiding pain. But look, the solution here is relatively simple. Number one, pause the spending, stop spending, particularly deficit spending, because that brings the Federal Reserve into creating a huge money supply increase, which they have not stopped by the way. Number two, um, you should deregulate. They've got to stop this regulatory octopus that is strangling the economy and most especially strangling the uh, energy sector, the oil and gas sector. And, And by the way, just for the heck of it, number three, cut taxes. I mean, I'm giving you a Reagan solution. When I worked for Reagan in his budget office many, many, many years ago, I mean, his he inherited a much worse situation. It was 10 or 12 years in the making. This is just one year in the making. But he basically had a program. He told Paul Volcker to strengthen the dollar, cut back on the money supply. He cut taxes, and he deregulated. Uh, for example, he decontrolled the price of oil, and um, he cut corporate taxes. So we had a tremendous increase in oil and gas supplies, and the price of oil fell from $40 uh, in those days, down to $10. So those are three things they should do. Pause the spending, deregulate, lower tax rates. Now, you can see how far away that is from today's progressive Democratic Party policies. 
Yeah, it just feels like none of those things are going to happen so long as the Democrats are running the show. And because you mentioned in that answer, in passing, oil and energy, that's my last subject here for you. The attempts at the White House to pretend now like they are not doing anything to hamper domestic production. And that's all a lie made up by Republicans. And really, it's Putin's fault. It's really the oil company's fault. The oil companies just won't drill enough, even though they have permission to. Uh, I'm sorry, but I remember all the rhetoric of this guy on the campaign trail. President Trump would play montages of Biden's comments at his campaign rallies in places like Pennsylvania, saying this guy is hostile to fracking, hostile to domestic oil, hostile to coal, all these things. And... He hammered him on it. Biden was promising the opposite of what the White House is now sort of pretending that their policy is. And this goes back to the spin on inflation. Is anyone actually buying the things that they're saying? Well, <laughs> I think the public is in full revolt against this, you know, radical climate change, Green New Deal stuff. I mean, look, instead of instead of uh, negotiating with Iran or or Venezuela, right. Biden should have a, he should have a special envoy to Midland, Texas, and meet the oil and gas business because they're ready to help. But the problem is, as I said before, it's this regulatory octopus that's strangling uh, the fossil fuel industry. And it's true they have a lot of leases on federal lands, although that's really a complicated distraction. Here's what's stopping right now. You have the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, will not allow a new pipeline. The Interior Department and the Energy Department have come up with crazy metrics called the social cost of carbon, which raises the price prohibitively, and they're using that as an excuse to stop drilling and pipelining, Guy, on private lands. This is the point I want to make. It's not just about federal leasing. Private lands are the bulk of our uh, drilling and fracking and so forth. But they're coming up with these crazy new metrics, the social cost of carbon, which has absolutely no basis in anybody's right mind. Okay, they're going back several centuries to look at stuff and make these crazy assumptions. But they are using the uh, NEPA permitting. They're using the clean water. They're using the endangered species to stop drilling permits on private lands. And that is a remarkable development. By the way, Obama never pulled this sort of thing. The fracking on private lands were left alone by the Obama people years back. So they have put a regulatory stranglehold. And until that's lifted, you're not going to get the kind of oil production and oil and gas delivery uh, that we need. That includes, by the way, LNG exports to Europe which has also been strangled by this. And that's the way you're going to fight Putin for national security. But that's the way you're going to help ordinary Americans, because the global price of oil will come down if they loosen the regulatory stranglehold. And as soon as the world price of oil comes down, the price of the pump comes down. The two are absolutely 100 percent correlated. Larry Kudlow, host of FBN's Kudlow, weekdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, He was the director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. Larry, always enjoy your insights. Thanks so much for making some time today. All right, guys. Hope to see you soon. Thanks very much.
Will do. We'll see you on the TV side, I'm sure, in the coming days. With that, we will quickly step aside, and when we come back, the home stretch. I found something on the Internet that made me chuckle. It's about my favorite musical artist of all time. Apparently, they're going to make a movie about him, which I'm excited about, except there's a catch. Seems like a pretty big one. We'll reveal it when we come back. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, and if you're listening on the broadcast, this is a great Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young. Probably one of my top three songs in his catalog. He's got a lot of hits, but it's fantastic. It was played at our wedding, which was a lot of fun, and I'm a huge Billy Joel person. I've seen him, I believe, five times in concert, though not at the Garden yet, Madison Square Garden. I've got to go see him as part of his residency. He sells the place out every month. And the tickets are expensive. I was like, maybe I'll treat myself. I'll go down on the floor, get seats right near the front, see him at the garden. And I was online. It was like $1,100 per ticket. What? Maybe not. But I'm a Billy Joel fan. He's my favorite artist. And I could go off about that for quite some time. In fact, I did. I was on a podcast a couple years ago called Political Beats. You can Google it. We talked about Billy Joel. We went through every album It was, I think, an hour and a half. It was really fun. So if you're a Billy Joel person, you can check that out. And so it would make sense that when I saw on my Twitter feed last night that there's a Billy Joel biopic that's been approved or greenlit by a Hollywood studio, of course, I was interested. Like, oh, here we go. The life and times of Billy Joel. We've seen this about Elton John. We've seen this about Queen and Freddie Mercury. There's been a series of these. And why not Billy Joel? But there was a slight problem with this film project. Problem is, apparently, the project has not gotten clearance to use Billy Joel's name, his likeness, or his music. So what could possibly go wrong with this movie? How do you make a Billy Joel movie if you can't say the name or use any of the music? It actually reminds me of a plot line from 30 Rock, the NBC sitcom where one of the characters, Jenna Maroney, this self-absorbed actress, was cast in a movie, a biopic of Janis Joplin. But similarly, they did not have the rights to any of that stuff, so she had to call herself Janet Jimpler and sing songs that were kind of similar but not quite right. Here's a little clip from 30 Rock, which kind of predicted the future in this sense. Cut 32. I will be playing Janis Joplin, or depending on how some legal matters pan out, a Janis Joplin-type character named Janet Jopler or Janie Jimplin. Uh, Janie Jimplin. That one. <laughs> and I think they had to end up changing it even more because of the threat of lawsuits in the 30 Rock episode. Now, that has come to life in the case of this film project, if it continues to move forward, about Billy Joel. If it happens, I might have to go see it just to witness how they try to navigate this minefield. You make a whole movie about someone, but you can't use their name for their music, and what they're famous for is their music. Perhaps they could sing some songs, whoever this was, that are kind of similar. Right? Sing us a song, I'm the keyboard guy, for legal reasons. Moving in, 
downtown woman as opposed to uptown girl. Now, just tweak them a little bit. It sounds vaguely familiar. You just change some things so you don't get sued. Scenes from a Sicilian eatery. Right? You can't say Italian restaurant. Bottle of red. And then the song that we bumped in with on the broadcast today here in the home stretch, Only the Good Parish Early. That's sort of, I don't know, a little bit less catchy. It doesn't quite get your foot tapping the same way, does it? Well, we'll see if this project actually unfolds because it sounds like a disaster. And if you know anyone with a connection to Billy Joel tickets, uh, feel free to hit me up because I'd like to go see the real thing in real life once again. All right, I'm heading to South Carolina tonight. We'll be doing the show from Charleston tomorrow. Nikki Haley will be here, among others. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, we'll talk to you then. Same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.